This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. This is the first episode of Very Serious. So first of all, welcome. I'm so glad that you're joining us to listen. And I'm going to take a few minutes to talk about what this show is going to be all about. The objective we have on this show is to address the questions behind the controversies, the differences of values or preference or analysis that cause us all to have disagreements on the big political and cultural controversies of the day. Because too often, people are talking past each other. I think you see this on cable news all the time. You see it between politicians. People don't fully understand why they disagree. Or sometimes they willfully don't understand what their opponent's position actually is and why they hold it. And when I was hosting Left, Right, and Center for the last seven years, we, and when I say we, I mean me and my producer, Sarah Fay, who's come with me to start this new show, and many of the regular panelists that we would have on the show from week to week, we often found that the most satisfying and interesting conversations that we had were the ones that got all the way down to that level, to those underlying questions. And so we thought, why not do a show that does more of that and less following the headlines of the week? Uh, and so to that end, I actually have with me a couple of our favorite voices from my seven years on Left, Right, and Center. Uh, Elizabeth Brunig and Megan McArdle are here with me for this very first episode of Very Serious. Hey, Liz. Hey, Megan. Hey, Josh. Hi, Josh. Uh, Liz, of course, is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Megan is a columnist at The Washington Post. Uh, so are, are you both ready to get very serious? Let's do it. I am always very serious, Josh. Yes. So while this isn't a headline show, it's still a news show. And while these questions are obviously very serious, we're going to try not to take ourselves too seriously. Uh, now, for, for the new listeners, uh, maybe you're coming to this podcast from Twitter, or maybe you're reading the Very Serious newsletter, which you should be. It's at joshbarrow.com. Or maybe you've read my writing in Insider, New York Magazine, The New York Times. Anyway, regardless of why you're here, I'm glad you're here. What you're going to hear us talk about today is a question that's driving a lot of what's in the news this January. We're going to be talking about the economy and COVID and what it means to balance the economy against people's well-being. And so, so Liz, the way I've heard people talking about this in the last few weeks, especially since the CDC has relaxed the isolation requirements, saying you don't necessarily need to isolate for 10 days uh, after you test positive for, for COVID in the time of Omicron, um, you're seeing, you know, in the most melodramatic form, people are asking, you know, are you asking people people to die for the economy. Um, but the broader form is basically that you have well-being on one side of the ledger and economic activity on the other side. And that includes public sector economic activity. People are talking this way about public schools. I, I've even seen people saying it's neoliberal to want to keep doing in-person school right now. Is, is that a useful frame, Liz? Is there a version of that frame that's useful for thinking about these trade-offs? So the way that I think about the economy is that the economy is this network of functions that should serve human flourishing. Um, and there is an alternative way of looking at this. The alternative way of looking at it, you know, broadly construed and in a way that would probably read as somewhat unfair to people who, um, you know, register these sorts of views, but but I think is, is generally correct. The alternative view is um, the economy is this network of interactions and functions that's so complicated that it sort of has... Uh, ends of its own that may or may not be related to human flourishing and that because of its very complexity is difficult to harness or regulate 
to try to serve human flourishing because of the complexity. If you try to regulate it or harness it, uh, it's likely that you're going to break it in some kind of way that winds up producing unintended consequences or just failing to produce the effects you're going for. So, so that's the alternative view. I actually think it is pretty possible uh, to regulate the economy in in particular respects um, to uh, serve human flourishing. It's also possible to regulate it badly um, and and produce really unfortunate consequences. Now, in the case of COVID-19, we turned it off. We essentially shut down a lot of those interactions intentionally uh, so people would not be interacting. They would not be doing commerce. They would not be in the market. Um, and the idea was that way they wouldn't infect each other. We could slow the spread of this disease. We did that for a long time. It's kind of unprecedented. We've never intended to do that before, I think, in our nation's history. And it had a lot of really ill effects. I think we did, you know, a better job than we could have that I might have predicted ameliorating some of those with some of these major relief packages that we passed, you know, direct cash aid to people, essentially. Um, but I still think that there were huge gaps <laughs> in people's well-being. Um, and so now we're at this sort of critical juncture where the question before us is, are we going to just let the economy go? and go back to doing commerce in, a, in an ordinary fashion, essentially because those gaps that were left by the failures of these various relief packages and programs are so profound uh, that people are really suffering. That much is true, in my view. People are definitely suffering. And so I, I think that's sort of the juncture that we're at. And I, I think, you know, Increasingly, I wish that we all we had a different economic system and a different political system going into the pandemic, but we didn't. Uh, and so now people are really suffering in the moment, and we've got to find some kind of way to ameliorate that. So I, I, I am increasingly warm to opening public schools, um, relieving some of this pressure on people. Megan, I, I think the some of what Liz said there get, gets at a tension that that underlies some of these conversations, which is that you know if you close things, you can pay people, you can pay people who aren't at, at work, you know, the, through ordinary sick leave mechanisms or through large government programs of the sort that we did under the CARES Act and the various unemployment expansions and that sort of thing. But what that doesn't do is it doesn't cause the thing that they would have been doing at work to happen. Um, and so you can you can pay the teachers if they're not in school, but if the if the teachers are not in school, school, then the kids are, are not in school uh, with the teachers. And I, th I think that square often hasn't gotten circled in these conversations and it, it sort of misses what, you know, what the role of the economy is in people's lives, that it's, you know, that money is not a substitute for the economy, that there are, you know, real actual goods and services being provided. And those disruptions, if you have them sooner or later, that gets around into standards of living. Um, I think it gets around into standards of living. And I also think that, you know, a mistake that I think libertarians made, I made, um, but I also think kind of the universal basic income people make is that for a long time, we focused so intensely on consumption that we didn't focus on production and people really care about production. They care about being productive. They care about having um, a job that, that places them in the community and embeds them in communities where there isn't a lot of work or bad places to live in general. Um, and you can see this going as far back as Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier in, in the 1930s north of England. Um, and so part of it, I think, is that when you're preventing people from working, 
you're actually depriving them of something. You're also depriving them, right? We're also not doing jobs. We're not, you know, supply chain problems and so forth. But also people want to work. You know, the parents who can't work, a lot of them would like to do their jobs because they are building a career. They're building towards something. And when they their children are home and also their children are home and isolated and feeling terrible and having all of these weird pandemic side effects that, you know, parents are talking about. I was talking to uh, Razib Khan on his podcast, and he mentioned that his child really freaked out when they when they said, no, it's okay to be somewhere without a mask and people who are not our immediate relatives can come into the house now because his kid didn't remember a world before that. And so I think part of it is that just preventing people from going to work is itself a bad thing. And then of course it has all of these consumption knock-on effects um, that are really damaging to people who need things they can't get. Do you agree with that, Liz? Yeah. I mean, I think um, it's certainly uh, become increasingly apparent that production has been affected um, in in certain respects. Uh, it's difficult to, you know, go use public goods, basically. Every good is having to be privatized if you're trying to um, limit your contact with the outside world. That has, you know, created a situation where we have an increased demand for goods, but we either don't have the goods or we can't move them around because of this other problem. But I guess my my, my question for you about what what Megan said there is, the, you know, people people want to work, and I think I think that's true to to a significant extent. Although I think you know a lot of you know a lot of some people have you know view their work as a career, and some people view it as as a job, and people have different views on on the importance of work to their to their well being. I, I wonder for you as a socialist, Liz. I I mean, part of the socialist project, right, is to is to delink labor from consumption in certain ways, right? You know, people are supposed to have the things that they need regardless of the, the value that they produce day to day. But in an economy-wide level, you need people producing things for those things to exist. So what is the what does it mean for that relationship in a in a time like this where you know people have, you know, more good reasons than ever why their work might be disrupted, and yet we're still trying to ensure that the suite of goods and services that they they need is available to them. How do you think about that relationship in that context? I mean, it's, it's been a huge tension. And I think, you know, when the pandemic began and um, this all got started, it was pretty clear uh, that, you know, quality of life was going to take a dip, that things were going to change for a while. You saw a lot of rhetoric along the lines of, uh, you know, this is like World War II, essentially, we're all going to have to band together and sort of stiff upper lip it through this. It's just that it's gone on for a long time. Um, it's gone through sort of frustrating zigs and zags where it seems like it's getting better. There's a brief period that in spring of 2021, for instance, where it looked like it was kind of over. And then, you know, of course it wasn't. Um, and so because of that, I think it has ground people down. I do think people want to work. I would even say, I would put a finer point on it and say, people want to be creative. They want to make things. They want to do things. Um, whether that translates to labor market work, you know, just kind of depends on your era, your place and time. Um, and I think the same satisfaction that people get out of labor market work, some people get out of, well, for instance, I, I make a lot of very kind of complicated bait goods and I give them away. It's not labor market work. I just enjoy the creativity of it. I like making things and sharing them with people. But I do think that's a pretty basic human drive. Yeah. 
Let's take a quick break, and then I want to come back with Liz Bruning of The Atlantic and Megan McArdle of The Washington Post to talk about what we've learned over the last two years about the public sector and the private sector and what each of them is maybe not so great at. This is Very Serious. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious. I'm Josh Barrow. I'm here with Megan McArdle of The Washington Post and Liz Brunig of The Atlantic. So, Megan, I think one one interesting tension that we've seen over the last two years, what we've learned about the economy is, as, as Liz notes, we've, we've seen ways that the private sector has not functioned as it was supposed to. We've seen these supply chain disruptions. And one thing people talk about is, do, do we need more government rules that restrict the ways that companies trade and you know where they source their goods from and the extent to which they keep inventories so that they will be robust against these sort of disruptions, basically saying that the private system isn't working like it was supposed to. Maybe we need more public intervention. At the same time, you have extensive disruption in public schools. It's gone on. It's especially uh, acute in places this month after, you know, earlier the, the end of last year, virtually all public schools getting open. Um, and so that, you know, raises a question, is public schooling as reliable as it ought to be? Does that create more demand for private schools? So do you see, are you learning things here about places where the public sector needs more private involvement, places where the private sector needs more public involvement? Is it changing your view on the relationship between government and the economy? Yeah, I think there are two questions there. Um, and on question one, which is, are there areas where one questions the kind of traditional free market precepts? I think a little bit. Um, I think both because of the pandemic and because of the way China has behaved, frankly, um, I worry about having so much of our supply chains dependent on China. I worry about having so many microchips coming out of Taiwan, which might be controlled by China, not that distant future. Um, that said, I think it is hard to specify um, things. I mean, I can specify small things. I could. We should have N95 mass production. But in fact, we had N95 mass production. The government just didn't should have gone to the company that, that that makes them in the U.S. and just said, "Make buy as many machines as you can, make as many as you can, we'll make sure you don't lose money. It was all we had to do, we didn't do it. Um, and I think that goes to the broader problem, which is that it's not that I cannot imagine ways in which I would like some you know, omniscient entity to, to be arranging our supply chains so that they're more secure. The problem is that the government has not behaved very much like that omniscient entity. And if I had to say who did better during the pandemic, the public sector or the private sector, I would say the private sector by far. The companies retool. I, remember I interviewed the the um, a guy, King Arthur Flower, and was talking about the amazing things that they had to do. First of all, demand quadruples in a very short period of time. And also at the same time, it's getting harder to produce the stuff because you have to distance people on the lines and so forth. And they responded to that and they actually got flour back into the into the shops pretty quickly. And if you compare that with the serial failures at the CDC and the FDA, for example, which weren't rectified, if you compare that to the schools that shut down and then just didn't reopen and that we're still fighting with teachers over whether they have to go back, despite the fact that most people who have to work in person are back at work in person and saying that teachers are special when in fact they are special. They have one of the most important jobs that our society does. And to say, therefore, you know, their job is so important and they're so special that they don't have to do their job. Um, I think is is really worrying. And I think you saw a lot of that in the public sector. You saw public health experts routinely, serially kind of misleading people and in, in trying to do this, this like third level ninja 
outfoxing people, trying to like, you know, reverse, reverse, reverse psychology to get them to not, for example, hoard N95 masks when hospitals needed them. Um, when you saw the the sudden reversal on the the benefits of public protests when George Floyd happened, all of those things were massive failures. And they are serial fa- failures. And so even though I do worry about some of the ways in which the, the private sector is arranging the market, when I look at how the government is actually performed, do I trust that government to pick what we need onshored without giving, you know, without giving into the impulse to protect the the critical jet ski industry because it has powerful friends in Congress. Um, and then to execute, no, the pandemic may be, if anything, I have less faith in the government than I did going into the pandemic, which makes me sad because I really had envisioned a kind of World War II, okay, yes, price controls are bad and, you know, we're going to make some mistakes, but overall, we're going to pull together and do this big project. And that didn't come off. We screwed it up at every institutional level. So Liz, what is, what is the standard for, for addressing the private sector side of, of those issues? Because I mean, the, the, the issues that Megan identifies there with that, you know, vulnerability to supply chains across borders and that sort of thing, the talking point I usually hear from actually on, on the right, in addition to the left, is that basically these com- multinational companies are too focused on profits. They're doing, sourcing these things the cheapest way they can, ways that creates these, fr- fr- these fragilities. And we need a set of, uh, of measurements and goals that goes beyond corporate profits to ensure that they're making better choices for the whole economy on these things. What does that look like? Do you, do you, is that a viable framework in, in your view? If, you know, the, suppose you make the companies less focused on profits. What do you do that actually gets them focused on other things that produces better outcomes in these areas? Well, I'm not sure anybody um, either wants or believes that they can make companies focus on other things. I'm not even sure people would want that. Oh, a lot. Um, a, a lot I mean, they, they may be wrong, but I, th- I think a lot of people believe that they can, they have these concepts about, you know, patriotic corporations yeah, and that sort of thing. Or Elizabeth, Elizabeth Warren is out there, you know, scolding them for being greedy and raising prices too much. I think, you know, she, she, she seems to think that there is a way through some sort of suasion I mean, and maybe you do see this in Japan, where I think, you know, you've the one of the ways that they have held down price increases is sort of through norms of how corporations behave. But very I, different society. <laughs> yes. But people people think you can do this. People think you can and people think they would want it. What I would point to is, uh, you know, companies already are focused on things other than profits. For instance, companies make decisions all the time about where they're going to build or uh, add branches based on the local laws regarding, say, transgender bathrooms. Um, And, you know, or in the case of Hobby Lobby, whether they're going to cooperate with statutes uh, with respect to providing employees coverage for birth control. This is because companies do have other interests aside from just profits. They don't just go along to get along. Um, They have, you know, the, they sometimes act according to the moral interests of their uh, leadership. Um, and inevitably, when that happens, people freak out. It is a huge hullabaloo. I mean, Hobby Lobby is now synonymous with a certain kind of you know, Christian fundamentalism because of the battle they fought uh, over uh, the Obamacare birth control coverage mandate. Um, 
And, you know, the same thing with the businesses that refused to come into, I think, North Carolina a little while ago, businesses that were threatening Georgia over voting rights restrictions. Uh, American senators like Ted Cruz got into public fights with these companies over that. So, I mean, I think this is much more of a live thing than people may realize and a much more controversial thing than they may realize. I think with with companies, you know, the the sort of safest um, and most reliable thing you can do is just incentivize them uh, to cooperate with, I think, fairly certain commonsensical measures, um, you know, related to ameliorating some of these, you know, intense effects uh, of the pandemic. My husband, Matt Brunig, who runs the crowdfunded socialist think tank, People's Policy Project, um, is always floating these sort of 1970s and 80s um, uh, Scandinavian notion of sort of punitively nationalizing uh, or, or partially nationalizing companies if they refuse to cooperate with uh, these sort of measures that are good for the economy at large and good for the um, polity, in, especially in, in extremists. Um, you know, there might be something to that. Um, not maybe punitively nationalizing them, um, but you can buy them. Right. I mean, if they won't if they won't cooperate and they're being harmful, you can buy them. I, I also don't have any problem with the government, at least attempting to use some kind of bully pulpit as in Japan. They certainly have that capacity. The, these are also they're forms of the same issue, though, right, that, you know, companies exist to serve the interests of certain stakeholders. And the, the most common, the most obvious form of that is that they, you know, they want to return profits to the shareholders. But sometimes, you know, you have a closely held company like Hobby Lobby, and the owners have an objective that is not purely a profit objective, but it's still their own personal objective about some moral issue. Or when you talk about transgender bathrooms, I think what you're often seeing there is companies uh, operating on behalf of their employees as a stakeholder. The employees have a lot of influence over what the what the corporate policies are in ways that do not necessarily maximize profits. And you can talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it's certainly a true thing. Um, and so if you if you nationalize, then you, you get a new set of stakeholders, which in theory is the public. Um, but I think you have a lot of those same issues with the imperfect mechanism by which, you know, the theoretical public interest flows through to, wit, to the way those actually operate. I mean, I don't know. I guess the, the most obvious example of what Liz is describing there, where you have a public entity competing against private entities would be in package delivery, right? You have the postal service competes against UPS and FedEx. Uh, there are issues with the postal service, but that's, that actually seems like a pretty dynamic and effective sector of our economy. Package delivery keeps getting better. It's effective. Things show up when they're supposed to. Is that a model that we should have in more places? Um, well, I personally, I don't know about anyone else, but every time I see that I've I've gotten a package shipped uh, with UPS to the U.S. Postal Service, I quail because in fact <laughs> packages shipped that way often just don't arrive at my house. Um, this is somewhat specific to D.C. My understanding is that the Postal Service works better in other places. I, I get the stuff that's supposed to come to me from the post office. I don't, I don't. Same. I think there are things that the government should do because only the government can do them. Um, and I think that that I break with other libertarians in thinking that that should be limited to, you know, what are called true public goods, where these are goods where you can't exclude someone from the benefit like police and, and um, you know, fire departments and, and the military where there's going to be a tendency to free ride and you need tax dollars to keep people from who, who will otherwise just get the benefits without paying for it. Um, I tend to think that something like 
welfare reform, right? We privatized a lot of that with the social work. And I think it, uh, I think it didn't work out very well because the incentives are all messed up. Um, and while I think that there are problems with government provision of it, ultimately, I think um, the government workers did a somewhat better job than the private contractors who had all sorts of weird incentives to just harm people in order to make bonuses, right? It's very hard to set up an incentive structure that will allow you to perform social work in the way that you want to um, without giving just perverse incentives that lead to people to, to just not treating their clients the way you would want them. Clients being what uh, welfare recipients were called under this system. Um, so I think there are things the government has to do just because the incentives of the private sector, there's no real good way to privatize it. I, I want to turn to, Liz, bef- before we break here, I want to turn to what Megan said about the the things that are true public goods that the you know the, the government is the, is the key provider of. Because I think something that a lot of people on the left have not been attentive to in this process is where that has broken down and what that does for the reputation of government services. That basically, you know, two years ago, if you said to people, it's not important if kids go to school, you know, parents just want this for child. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I understand it's important for the childcare function of schools is important. I, I think the way you emphasize that sometimes sort of maybe undersells the importance of the education function itself, which is very large in, in my view. Uh, but anyway, both of those functions are being undermined um, by the irregular operation of public schools. Doesn't that, isn't that going to create a, a reputation for years after this pandemic that people, they, they feel they can't rely on government services and it will reduce their support for those in the future? I, potentially. Um, I mean, I think you've seen elections that are, you know, especially last year. Um, and, you know, the midterms will probably tell us a lot more about this. Um, but uh, elections that were heavily impacted by uh, this very thing. So I'm thinking in particular of Virginia, with the deposal of uh, Northam and the win of Youngkin. Um, and so I, I think it is completely possible that you'll see further electoral results that are inflamed by this sort of building frustration with what people perceive to be the failure of these government services, which, to be fair, may not be the failure of government services, may be something more along the lines of a bad call. Um, the service itself is intact, is fine, it works. It's just that due to a lot of different factors, um, localities in different places feel pressured to or feel inclined to, um, you know, make these calls. And there's uh, a, a big problem in having, you know, governing an enormous country with lots and lots and lots of people that has, you know, significant control at the local level, which is you're going to get a lot of different results in a lot of different places. So people in Virginia are wondering why kids in Colorado get to go to school. Do they not have the same COVID there? Kids in Texas have been in school since XYZ, uh, yet we here in, you know, whatever, um, Maryland, you know, our kids haven't been in school for X number of months. I, I think that also drives this this comparison a, a huge amount of frustration and anger. Um, and so I, I worry about the impact it's going to have on, you know, the kind of general welfareist politics that I, I promote. And I especially worry about the impact it's going to have on the midterms. This doesn't necessarily mean that any one particular person or political tendency is at fault. It's just that we haven't had a pandemic like this before in our national history that we've responded to this way before. 
Uh, and so I think there are going to be a, a lot of um, lessons learned here. I, I want to take a quick break and then I want to pick back up on that because I want to talk about how those disruptions are affecting behavior because I think we're seeing how this has these disruptions that occur in these institutions have big societal effects, certainly that go well beyond children, also to adults. Uh, I've been talking with Liz Brunig and Megan McArdle. This is Josh Barrow, and I'm very serious. This is Very Serious with Josh Barrow, and I'm back with my guests today, Megan McArdle, columnist at The Washington Post, and Elizabeth Brunig, staff writer at The Atlantic, and we're talking about COVID and the economy. So one thing that I think we've been seeing in a lot of settings during this pandemic is people are not really behaving like they're supposed to, and we're seeing this including in commercial settings. Uh, you know, I mean, you see it in schools with behavior problems, but you also see it on airplanes with the huge uptick in air rage incidents, passengers getting into, into fights, often over masks, needing to be deboarded, even needing to be restrained in their seats. And you hear this a lot from service workers all over the place, that customers are ruder and more ill-tempered and more difficult than ever. Um, and so, you know, I think about why is this happening? And one is, you know, obviously the, the pandemic has been a really dislocating experience for all sorts of people. And people are, you know, the, it's, it's been an abnormal social and psychological experience. And I think that people are understandably frayed in certain ways. But another thing is that, you know, the, the, the customer service experience is actually worse in a lot of ways than it used to be because all of these pandemic restrictions make life difficult for, for everyone, makes it more difficult for service workers to do their jobs. You also have places trying to do, you know, more business with fewer workers. And, and I think we're, we're seeing an, an interesting and somewhat surprising thing that I would not have expected before this pandemic hit, which is to say, you know, we... We've had a very tight labor market. Now, inflation's been eroding wage gains. It doesn't look as good for workers as it did a, a, a year and a half ago, uh, two years ago. And that, that's one, one thing. But another thing is that, you know, as you, when Gallup goes out and they poll people about how they feel about the economy, you get record l numbers of people saying that it's a good time to find a quality job. And they still say that the economy sucks and they hate it. And I think one thing we're learning here is that people's consciousness of their status as, as workers is less than you might have expected before the pandemic, and their consciousness of themselves as consumers is higher. That, you know, the, the people are on both sides of that tight labor market, and they don't necessarily like it when they're the customer or, you know, a substantial fraction of the population actually does manage people. And so I, I don't know, Liz, what do you, am I, am I right in that diagnosis that people's class consciousness is maybe a little bit different? Than we thought it was that the the people you know the the tight labor market. A lot of people are like, well, you know, I I don't just do labor; I use labor, and I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's certainly been part of it. I think, you know, sort of underlying that tension is political polarization. So you know, this is a well-known phenomenon; it's very well established. I think it's a huge driving force in our politics and in our society. Um, but because you have sort of one chunk of the American political spectrum saying all of these restrictions are overblown, they're bullshit, they're unfair, they're not helping, they're just burdening everyone, this is a tyrannical overreach by the liberal bureaucratic managerial state, et cetera, et cetera. You also have people who are very conscious of their status as consumers who are bringing, you know, legal tender to the table but being refused service in their view. Um, and it begins to feel to them like not exactly maybe a kind of persecution, um, but perhaps an exclusion of them from certain services that are available to the public based on their views. So in the mind of someone who says, 
look, we've dealt with COVID. People are vaccinated. I want to get on with my life. Everything uh, to the contrary is, you know, just sort of overreached by these bureaucrats who have repeatedly lied to us to try to manipulate us into various uh, positions, like Megan mentioned with the N95 uh, hoarding thing, which was, uh, you know, pretty egregious lie to the public. Um, People who feel that way say, this is my viewpoint. This is my political or personal view on this. I don't want to wear a mask. I've thought about it. I've made my decision. And then they're going into the local Panera Bread and getting thrown out for scrapping with an 18-year-old register worker who's saying, look, put on the mask. It's what my manager says we're supposed to do. The manager's just dealing with local mandates. Um, and you know, so I think that's another aspect of this this sense of a, of an identity under siege or people being robbed of the decision to sort of execute their agency in the market uh, is another factor in, in people going nuts at the local UNOs. Megan, what do you make of that? So I have a couple uh, other theories. I don't think either any of these theories are wrong, but I have a couple other theories as to what may be happening. And one of them is that in the same way that people behave worse online, because they don't think of the person that they're interacting with as a real human being. You know, if, if you try to imagine a, a Twitter mob assembling in person, it's hard, right? It's, it's not impossible, but it would be unlikely that these people would devote any substantial portion of their day to standing around and screaming at some random person standing in a circle um, because they would feel bad about it. But they don't feel bad about it when it's online. And so I think when you put masks on people, that does to some extent remove the facial cues that kind of moderate our behavior. Um, but the other kind of thesis I have is, and this goes to roads, because you've seen a tremendous increase in traffic fatalities. And I've been trying to explain that, and part of it is, you know, stress of pandemic and so forth. But I, I had to drive up to Massachusetts in the middle of the pandemic because my dad got COVID. And the roads were empty and people were crazy. Even then, you could see people behaving. I mean, I was, I was going pretty fast, um, well above the speed limit. Um, and I was getting smoked by people who were passing me at 110, 120 miles an hour. Oh, the driving that spring summer was, was maniacal. Right. But I think my, my thesis of what is happening on the roads is something akin to what has happened in a lot of communities where job opportunities disappear. Bear with me. This sounds a little weird. But what happens is you withdraw the kind of the most together people leave the town. And they, you know, the kids leave and they go somewhere else. And what you're left with is the people who are least together. And when you pull out the most together people, the rest of the town kind of collapses. And I, and I think a similar thing happened during the pandemic. The most risk-averse people and the most conscientious people were more likely, not, I'm not saying that everyone who was out was not conscientious or risk-loving, but, but that that split happened, that the people who were still out were more likely to be risk-loving, were less likely to be conscientious and worry about getting into traffic accidents. And so the norms on, that shifted the norms on the roads. And now that people are back on, you, it's hard to shift that norm back, right? Norms are, are kind of an equilibrium. And I think something similar may have happened in customer service and in on airplanes and so forth, which is that the people who were going onto the planes were actually different from the people who'd been there before the pandemic. They were more likely to misbehave. They, you, when you removed the people who were less like, and they were angry, they, and they were stressed and so forth. So you have all of those things happening, and then the the, the flight attendants react by being incredibly kind of, you know, um, preemptively hostile to customers, <laughs> just in case. 
Um, and I mean, I've been on a couple of planes and trains where the very clearly annoyed people were like, we will, you know, sort of like your mom, I will turn this car right around and take you off if you don't put your mask on. Uh, lectures from people at the, you know, in the cockpit or, or the conductors on the train. And so I think those moving those removing those people out has actually just shifted who is left in 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 the environment. And then you add in all of this other stuff. My manager is making you wear a mask. I don't want to wear a mask. I'm angry about it. But you know what? Like, I don't want to wear a mask either at this point. I don't think it's very helpful, to be frank. Um, but I still do it because I'm kind of a non-confrontational person. And if I don't want to feel like a psychopath. So if it really bothers someone else, I'm just going to wear the mask because like, I don't want to bother other people. Um, if you're not the sort of person who thinks that way and you're hostile and angry and you go in there, you cause trouble. And I think that that has been that that shift in who is out and about has by and large not been good. An interesting thing is both the, the theories that both of you have put out here are fundamentally pandemic related theories that should fade as the restrictions and the pandemic related practices fade. And to Megan's point, there could be hangovers, but it should eventually go back to normal. I the, the thing I'm pointing out, it, it has to do with the way the pandemic has affected the labor market, but it also has to do with the Federal Reserve and the way that they've shifted their policies toward trying to promote lower unemployment and tr- tolerating more inflation, basically trying to create a tighter labor market where you're going to have more of these situations where basically you're going to have lots of businesses trying to do more with fewer workers. You may see price increases, especially for products and services that, re- that rely on relatively low-wage workers. And so the, the interesting thing, and, and we will see over the coming years, the, the extent to which all, because I think all of these things matter. But the thing I'm talking about in theory is not temporary with the pandemic. It is a, it is a intentional policy change in the way we do monetary policy, the way we balance unemployment against inflation. It's a policy change that I've broadly supported, but I'm, you know, the, I think the public reaction to it, I think has been a little bit different than I would have predicted. And, you know, there's a little bit more backlash. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, two years out from now, if nobody's wearing masks anymore, and basically all those practices can be back to normal, but we still have a Fed really trying to heat up the labor market to see how people will feel about that will be interesting. I want to leave that there today. Uh, I want to thank both of you, and we'll be talking with both of you again very soon. Uh, I want to encourage listeners, by the way, please please write into us, ask us questions. Liz and and Megan, along with a a cadre of of voices you're familiar with, are going to be back here regularly. Please reach out to us. You can contact us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That's mayo like mayonnaise. Uh, But for now, I want to thank you so much for listening. And Liz and Megan, I want to thank you so much for joining for this very first episode. Josh, thanks so much for having me on. Honored to be uh, here for the first episode, Josh. Thanks for having me on. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and Sarah Fay. Our newsletter can be found at www.joshbarrow.com. Please sign up there. You'll receive four issues of the newsletter every week. I think you're going to find it really interesting. I want to give a special thanks to Gary Scott of Inside Voices. This episode was mixed by Jennifer Swadek. Joshua Mosher composed our theme music. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week.